My Uluru Story Nayaku Pulipulka Chukurpa Storytelling For better and for worse, today's information sharing technology makes it so much more evident that the human race is primarily a storytelling species. Everything we do and say, all our thinking and behavior, is almost entirely influenced by the stories going on between our ears. Be they fact or fiction, be they well-intended or otherwise, stories are our primary and most influential source of information. So it is with this grand philosophical premise in mind that I offer you my Uluru story, Ngayaku Puli Pulka Chukurpa, this by way of celebrating NADOC 2021 here in Queensland, Australia. This is a story of how I was literally reminded by such a remarkable place, Uluru, <clears throat> and its indigenous custodians, the Anangu, about the importance of our relationship to place and family, Walcha or kin. Thanks to its indigenous Anangu custodians, over millennia, the landscape and rock formations of Uluru Katajuta National Park has invoked stories come lessons that I believe are of potential value for the whole human race. Especially now that our relatively advanced information sharing technology is being deliberately used in so many subtle and not so subtle ways to divide and separate us from our sense of place, from each other, and all too often from reality. I quote, Uluru Katajuta National Park, an isolated tiny patch in Australia's vast arid zone at the very centre of the continent, is a symbol for a special, almost intangible quality of the continent's interior, but also for the cooperative human spirit. It is one of the most remarkable places on earth. From the start, I was determined to find out as much as I could about it. Uluru, looking after Uluru Katajuta, the Anangu Way, Stanley Breeden, 1994. Life among the Anangu. From 1990 until 1995, it was my privilege to have lived and worked with the indigenous Anangu of Central Australia, Northern Territory, at Uluru Katajuta National Park and then from 1995 until 1998 on the Anangu Pirinjara lands, South Australia. Uluru Katajuta is a World Heritage Area National Park, listed for both its natural and cultural values. During my time there, I had the rare opportunity of being able to work closely with its Anangu custodians while renominating the park for World Heritage Area listing based on its cultural values. It was already World Heritage Area listed based on its natural values. During the same 1990 to 95 period, Anangu and Pirinpa Park staff, along with various professional consultants and builders, worked on the design and construction of the Uluru Cultural Center. The early 1990s was when the award-winning author of natural history, Stanley Breeden, was given permission from the Anangu to produce a book about the park, 
particularly about the nature of the park, its flora and fauna, but also about the Anangu and Pirampa, whitefellas, who were working together to manage Uluru the Anangu way. This too was a most valuable opportunity for Stanley and us Pirampa park staff to learn more about the depth of knowing about and relatedness to their place that Anangu possessed. And I quote, we commend this book to you and affirm its accuracy and value. We Anangu are strongly committed to our culture and we believe this book shares in our commitment. Tony Jamoa, traditional owner in Forward to the Book, Uluru looking after Uluru Karajuda, the Anangu way. I believe I can safely say that for most, if not all, park staff, the period 1990 to 95 was a particularly valuable period to have been living and working at Uluru. It was a time when Anangu traditional owners were settling into the management of their sacred land, which has been, had been formally and conditionally returned to them by the Australian Commonwealth Government in 1985. The condition of returning being that the park would immediately be leased back to the Commonwealth for 99 years. Nevertheless, the following decade was a particularly productive period during which the leadership of Jilpi, senior Anangu man, Tony Jamwa, and his Pirampa liaison officer, John Willis, enabled Anangu to become more confident, assertive, capable and generous in expressing the more public and appropriate for sharing components of their chokrapa, their law. This was also a significant period when a new emphasis on sharing Anangu chokrapa and culture was in effect a maturing of the relatively early days of joint management. That is the management of the park by both the Australian Nature Conservation Agency and the park's Anangu traditional owners. In addition to the above mentioned more prominent projects, several less publicized park management initiatives took place during this period, including placing a new emphasis on Pirinjara language classes for us Pirinpa staff. These classes were conducted by Anunga Rangers and the few Pirinpa staff, such as Julian Barry and John Willis, who were fluent speakers of the Pirinjara language. As a result of these Anangu-led language classes, a healthy number of Pirampa rangers, mostly female, I might add, became fluent Pirinjara speakers. This too contributed significantly to the maturing of joint management. Another similar initiative was that of Anangu-led basic cultural training course come certificate, designed to enable visiting and local tour operators particularly bus drivers, most of whom until then were making up their own stories about the park and Anangu, to gain a more appropriate and approved understanding of the park and how it was now being managed, the Anangu way. While some bus drivers initially balked at the idea, at the end of such training ses sessions, most of them had enjoyed their face-to-face -face interaction with Anangu and their better understanding of Anangu culture. Back in 1994, I was highly motivated by Stanley Breeden's chapter 13 entitled, 
To Climb or Not to Climb, in which he writes, Anangu find the compulsion to climb, to conquer Uluru, incomprehensible, and also think that it shows disrespect by strangers for another people's land. They want people to understand Anangu and Uluru Karajuda. Understanding is everything. Once people understand, Anangu are convinced mutual respect will follow. Jamwar expresses it. We want tourists to learn about our place, to listen to us Anangu, not just look at the sunset and climb the rock. Narana Tarinjawiya, we never climb. The Anangu traditional owners of Uluru Karajuda National Park reluctantly tolerated people being allowed to climb Uluru. Unfortunately, even though the Anangu had made it very clear how they felt about the climb, the pressure from the tourist industry and to a lesser extent the Pirinpa agency involved in joint management of the park continued to resist its closure for too long a period. For some years in my role as the senior Pirinpa staff member, I advocated for the closure of the climb having made various unsuccessful submissions to my supervisors in Darwin and Canberra. On reflection, my persistence over this issue cost me too much lost sleep and a few casual friendships. However, about 25 years later, on Sunday the 26th of October 2019, Anangu and probably millions of us Pirimpa celebrated the closure of the climb at Uluru. From my relatively well-informed perspective, albeit decades later and from afar, the closure of the climb at Uluru in 2019 was a well-overdue move in the context of managing the park the Anangu way. <clears throat> Uluru is now being respected and protected in a way that better reflects its universal, universal sorry, significance as a sacred site. I quote, It is directly and tangibly associated with events living traditions, ideas and beliefs of outstanding universal significance. And it is a potent example of imbuing the landscape with the values and creative powers of cultural history through, through the phenomenon of sacred sites. Renomination of Uluru Karajuda National Park, Department of the Environment, Sport and Territories, 1994. On reflection, I often think about the eight years I spent in Central Australia with my then partner, Marion Hill, as a kind of pilgrimage. Our original intention was to experience what we thought might be the real Australia, rather than the sanitized version we were both immersed in, in an urbanized Victoria. Nowadays, I do reflect on my time with Arlingu in Central Australia as a pilgrimage into a time and place that gradually changed my my mind, for the better and forever. <clears throat> Finding my own story stone. My partner and I lived along with other Pirinpa and the more permanent Anangu residents at a place called Murujulu, a small community within the park and just a few kilometers from the base of Uluru. Much of my recreation time was spent roaming and exploring the surrounding landscape and rock formations of Uluru and Katajuda. On one such occasion, I stumbled upon what 
would eventually become my most influential symbolic story stones. Only after many visits and spending much contemplative time at its resting place did I eventually become sensitive enough to receive and relate to the stone as Nayaku Puli Chokorpa, my story stone. It is rectangular in shape and with proportions similar to that of a standard matchbox, and I estimated it, its weight to be close to a metric ton, far too heavy to have been moved by human hands. Therefore, I imagined at a time, I, I imagined it to have been shaken from its place of origin at a time when our Earth Mother Gaia was rumbling deep within her great southern belly probably in response to some powerful tectonic force. Since then, and probably for millennia, it has rested on just two of its diagonally opposite edges, exposing itself to be observed, felt, and related to through each of its six rustic faces. Almost three decades later, my story stone continues to inspire me to imagine, study, and write about the significance of relating to place at both the personal and cosmic levels. During such periods of contemplation, I can imagine how the first Anungu hunters and gatherers, who having evidently produced some nearby cave art, received this impressive looking stone in their own unique indigenous way. Once I felt comfortable about relating to my story stone in this way, it marked the beginning of the most creative personal journey of my adult life. A journey that released me from decades of entrapment in relatively ordinary dominant states of consciousness. A journey that eventually reminded me of a time and place, Penarth, Wales, 1944 to 1950, the first five years of my life when, like many young Anangu, I too was being nurtured by my mother to enjoy and cultivate our relationship with place, self, other and all that is. The storying and importance of relatedness in general and relationship with family or kin in particular was literally brought home to me when a group of Malpa Jilpi, friendly senior Anangu men, realized I had not been home to visit my kin for about 26 years, since leaving Wales in 1967. They thought I must be a bit sick in the head. Not long after this friendly shame job come wake up call, I returned home to Wales, where I enjoyed relating to my family members, including young ones whom I had never met in what for me was a new and healthier way. At the time, I was in effect being reminded about and grown up by Anangu to the importance of my own Welsh place, heritage and kin. I quote, Bob's admiration for Anangu takes a somewhat different direction from that of the other Pirinpar I spoke to. He continues, I'm pretty sure that my upbringing had something to do with it. My mother was a very nice and gentle person who was close to nature and she influenced me. Uluru, looking after Uluru Karajuna, the Anangu way, 1994, page 183. Life back in mainstream Australia. 
My story stone and I are now physically separated by about 3,000 kilometers of mostly Australian desert landscape, to and from a place where it rests safely inside a small cave at the base of the north face of Uluru in central Australia. Nevertheless, since the year 2000, my story stone continues to inspire me to embark on exciting new spiritual and political journeys. One particularly influential story that came to me while living and working among the Anahu of Central Australia is about how and why it was not likely or even possible for Anahu men or women to form a centralized group within their tribe or community for the purpose of having power and control over the rest of the community. Prior to being colonized by European invaders who had already perfected such a practice, Anunguku Chukrupa, law, their way of being and relatedness to place and other, including the other than human beings within their place, was such that there were no words in their Pirinjara language that could so much as give rise to thoughts of power and control over each other, let alone the more extreme thoughts of forming a centralized group for such a purpose. Moreover, the initiation of young adolescent Anangu boys and girls into adulthood was particularly important for maintaining the level of maturity and cooperation that was essential for such indigenous hunter-gatherer communities to thrive. Such an extreme contrast between the forms of community, economy and productivity being practiced by the Anangu of Central Australia prior to being invaded and divided, with that being practiced by the European invaders, is a most pertinent and valuable story, not just for contemporary Australians, but for the whole human race. Traditional Anunga society was a relatively free, cooperative and egalitarian society when compared to their European invaders, who were of a society that was deliberately divided, unequal and mostly imprisoned. The indigenous Anangu of Central Australia had no need for standing armies, gunships or police forces. Their relatedness to place and each other was demonstrably more mature, sophisticated and peaceful than that of their invaders. Unfortunately, and maybe inevitably, in more recent times, some Anangu leaders, usually men, have adopted their European colonizers' practice of centralized power and control with a bit too much relish. Not long after returning to live in mainstream Australia, my Uluru experience aroused in me a new curiosity that soon had me doing some relevant academic study. In an effort to try and make some sense of what for me was an obvious and annoying lack of understanding and empathy towards the socio-economic circumstances of indigenous Australians among Australians in general, I enrolled to do a social ecology master's degree at the University of Western Sydney, UWS. During my time at UWS, I met another like-minded storyteller, Glens Livingstone, with her own emerging story, Pagan Cosmology, a reinventing of earth-based goddess religion. Glennis and I both graduated on the same day in 2003, Glennis gaining her doctoral degree and me my master's degree with a distinction. 
Several days, decades later, we are still just as passionate about our storytelling together as we were on the day we met. Since the year 2000, Glens and I have been much inspired by the teachings of Thomas Perry and Brian Swim, both of whom authored Canticles to the Cosmos, 1990, and The Universe Story, 1994. Both of these works, together with our ongoing practice of seasonal celebrations that are mostly informed and inspired by Pagan Cosmology, Pagan Cosmology 2005, the book form of Glenys's doctoral thesis, have enabled us to deepen our appreciation of planet Earth's biosphere as being an awesome creative event. Canticles to the Cosmos is based on Thomas Berry's 12 principles of a functional cosmology. Principle number 12 convinced me that if we are to develop our full personal and human potential, we will need the emergence of something close to what Thomas describes as an ecozoic era of Earth development, an era during which we activate the intercommunity in the intercommunion, rather, of all the living and non-living components of the Earth community. Such was my newfound appreciation and experience of creativity and beauty throughout an otherwise increasingly troubled world that it soon prompted me to search for a compatible political story. I had almost given up on my search and politics in general when I came across these two particular passages. In this world, at this point, no, particular, no political revolution is sustainable if it is not also a spiritual revolution, a complete ontological birth of new beings out of old. Equally, no spiritual activity deserves respect if it is not at the same time a politically responsible, i.e. responsive activity. The only meaningful political direction left now is synonymous with the only meaningful spiritual direction left now, towards the conscious refusion of the spirit and the flesh. This time it will be a global consciousness of our global oneness, and it will realize itself on a very sophisticated technological stage, with perhaps a total merger of psychic and electronic activity. Barbara Moore the Great Cosmic Mother, 1987. And I quote, Once he has done with the anarchic forces of his own society, man will set to work on himself in the pestle and retort of the chemist. For the first time, man will regard itself as raw material, or at best as a physical and psychic semi-finished product. Socialism will mean a leap from the realm of necessity into the realm of freedom in this sense also, that the man of today, with all his contradictions and lack of harmony, will open the road for a new and happier race. Leon Trotsky, in defense of the October Revolution, 1932. The above quotes inspired me to revive and pursue the development of my political consciousness. Hence, I am now convinced that providing we can survive global capitalism and replace it with a global socialism, we could enable the emergence of Thomas Berry's Ecozoic Era, 
and maybe eventually a global communion with the wisdom of Napchi Napchi, yet another inspiring Indigenous Australian story. Like an onion, as you peel away the layers of this particular Alangoku story, it reveals deeper meanings. For example, the outer layers of this story reveal a relatively simple ethic of reciprocity or fair exchange. Then maybe that of the golden rule, doing unto others as they would do unto you. Closer to the core of this Anangoku story reveals a more empathetic relationship whereby we do unto others what they would have us do unto them. A more organic understanding that does not distinguish between receiving and giving. An understanding whereby giving and receiving are one and the same. Until this day, learning from the place and people of Uluru enables me to continue cultivating a more balanced sense of place and relatedness. It also it, it is also enabling me in me rather a deeper spiritual and even political consciousness than I otherwise might have. All thanks to having found Nyayaku Puli Chukurpa, my story stone. Robert Taffy Seaborn, winter 2021, Southern Hemisphere.